0: house How's my favorite detective?
1: Eugene Jones is alive. You sure? Yeah, I'm sure. I shot him tonight. But uh he got away. Whoa, whoa, whoa. slow down. Where is he now? In a hospital. He, everyone's about to find out. Charlie, like Hey, what should we do? Charlie! We're so fucked! Who's we? Wait. You're the one who found the dead body. You're
2: the one who took credit for cracking a case you didn't solve. Sound like you in your car? Yeah. I suggest you keep on driving.
3: Welcome to Tales from Yaya's, your dedicated after-show podcast for Showtime's Your Honor. This is Caroline.
0: And this is Mike. Tonight we're discussing Part 17 of Your Honor. Tonight's episode was written by Bill Kane and was directed by Carrie Preston. This is Bill's first time writing on Your Honor and Carrie's first time directing Your Honor. But Carrie will be back to direct Part 18 next week as well.
3: Just a community note, please join us over on Facebook in the Showtime Your Honor TV series fan group to discuss all things Your Honor with all these great fans. Everybody's got theories and and favorite characters and ones they love to hate.
0: It is a it is a wild time going through the comments and discussions that erupt in the Your Honor group. It is of, of all of the groups that we run on Facebook. I know Handmaid's Tale gets a little hairy, but I'm not actively involved in that one. But of the other groups, the Your Honor group has the most invested fan base for sure.
3: Mm, I agree. I lots, agree. Lots
0: of, lots of fiery takes.
3: <laughs> Mike and I are the, the admins over there. And, uh, and we promise we'll, we'll take care of you because, uh, well, it's not one of those groups where people are like horrible,
0: horrible. No. At no, all. I don't think anyone's at mean, out. it's just like wild out there. Like
3: they really have some conspiracy ideas it's just great though
0: i love it i think i mean every now and then they turn out to be right or at least close enough to people that were saying charlie was squeaky clean or well rather people saying charlie was a a bad egg a long time ago maybe not so far off after this episode who knows
3: we're all looking at you mike we're all looking at
0: you just a reminder that we assume you have watched this episode and so you're going to be spoiled if you're listening to this and also we're not going to be going step by step through the episode so if you don't want to be spoiled spoiled pause this go watch the episode come back take a listen um and uh, we can get right to it right now Let's do it. All right, Caroline. Part seventeen of a ten-episode season. This was episode seven, but I got to tell you, this one felt like a like a penultimate episode to me.
3: Mm, and you love penultimate things,
0: I do, and I really love this episode. It felt it felt like the <laughs> second to last. Everything kind of getting set up for a finale, but we still have three hours left, so you know yeah. that, that's good. I, I mean, I'm happy for all of the action and all of the moving pieces. We've definitely got some resolution and and some moving moving forward in this episode. What, what's your ten thousand foot take?
3: I enjoyed the episode very much. I agree with you. So many things happened and it really pushed the story along. While we're covering uh, 1923 and we're having a lot of gripes about starting storylines and ending storylines, Your Honor has really a good handle on let's end this storyline, but this, but we're going to absolutely leave you with the threads of our next one right as we go to dark, you know, on the screen. They've just did a great job on this one and we got a lot of answers.
0: A lot of, a lot of answers. Uh, Actually, we got so many answers. I'm curious. Well, I'm (laughs) curious. I'm curious what we're going to be focusing on in the last three. I imagine we're going to be focusing on Desire versus the Baxter family.
3: Doesn't that seem like an end of the conversation? It does.
0: Conversation? It does. So let's put a button in this. What are you we'll, jump we'll, in
3: we'll, the we'll... entire episode just to just hop right into predictions?
0: I'm, I'm trying to be... What are you a... trying to
3: pull here?
0: I'm trying to be deadly efficient today. <laughs> uh, you, want, you know not I think I noticed I, when we were going, when I was watching this episode and I watched it a couple of times? Everyone's keeping tabs in this episode. This is purely, purely an observation, but I feel like everyone in this episode had their police scanner on and was monitoring yeah. the night's activities. This felt like almost like a John Wick or some kind of like crime movie where everything is happening at nighttime. It all happens yes. in one night and everyone has their police scanners on. I felt like we heard a lot of squawking in this episode.
3: That's something that I've actually seen a lot in our Facebook group of people talking about that the screen seems to be getting darker and darker and darker <laughs>
0: um,
3: because they're they're having a harder time seeing everything because all of the action's happening at night. And especially in this one, that the, a lot of the under the bridge scenes, were very dark on the screen it was, it was pretty rough to see any real details there
0: yeah, I mean, I think there's a theory in the industry right now that the darker you make your screen, the more dramatic it is.
3: Oh my God! Can I introduce you to Handmaid's Tale?
0: Well, Handmaid's <laughs> Tale, Game of Thrones, House of the Dragon. I, I mean, even
3: The Last of Us. I would say is it gets darker and darker and darker.
0: It's very true. There's a thing when you start a v- brand new video game. One of the settings in modern video games is you have to adjust the brightness of your screen. The way they do it is they they put an image on the screen and they say keep sliding this until you. You can barely see it and wow. that is that is how it adjusts to the brightness of your screen and it and the game adjusts accordingly i feel like That's all beautiful. of television has adjusted to barely see what's happening <laughs> as equating to a uh, good good storytelling it's, that
3: it's, would be so cool if at the beginning of, of television shows they did that where they were like they were like go ahead and adjust it to your to your comfort level basically i love that
0: I, it's like one of those things where you just like like on your phone especially as you get older oh I do that you constantly you have to turn the brightness so all the way up on your phone yeah how so it,
3: many times do I go to do that and it's already all the way up and I'm like oh I hang my head a little
0: <laughs> where is the bright as the sun setting that's what I'm looking for <laughs> what it
3: is my retinas need more help
0: <laughs> yes I am not a cat I cannot p- dilate my pupils oh, so wide funny very anyway, funny let's talk about episode themes there was a I think there was a good episode theme in this one of unraveling I, I feel like our character are really getting pushed to their limits Uh, rudy obviously is is unhinged and increasingly so in this episode i think big mo is starting to feel some heat and some pressure whether or not she even realizes the extent of it but also michael that scene where he finally breaks down on the bus towards the end of it everyone is at their their wit's end or or getting very close to their wit's end now as we approach the end of this season and maybe the end of the series
3: okay so let me throw i see i was actually taking unraveling to actually also be like some closure because unraveling kind of sounds like like really like kind of losing control which i definitely agree like say like big mo but like with michael i mean i think that crying yes it was unraveling but it was also just like this flood of relief like everything with with robin's entire mystery was finally put to rest and so there was some closure there that i i wasn't taking it like he was breaking down unravel style i was taking it like Like, he was finally, finally able to just let it all go.
0: Right. Well, yes. And and there is something very cathartic when you've been holding it all in and you finally get to cry. We saw this actually in 1923, not to talk about that show, but there is a character who has been abused and abused and abused all Mm. season long. And she finally got free of it. And the first moment she had, quiet moment she had, she just broke down into tears. It's the same thing, I think, what Michael's doing here. He knows the truth, but I think there's also sadness there, too, because I think as much as we talked about Michael betraying Charlie and whether or not that was going to be a a, a damaging blow to their friendship, I feel like when he says, I'm sorry, too, at the end of his conversation with Charlie, and then the next time we see him, he's on the bus, he's trying to cry. I think you're right. I think a lot of that is the Robin mystery resolving and finally having an answer and he can let go and unwind a little bit. He can unravel into some tears. But I think there's also sadness there with Charlie. Oh, yes. Yes.
3: And some of this you could say unraveled the mystery. Right. And and that included how many different people were involved with Robin and even people right under his nose that, you know, like Charlie, you know, like the mystery was unraveled, you know, or all the lies got unraveled, too.
0: Also, we have to – we can't undersell – this is the second time this season and in and, and timeline, probably the second time in a couple of weeks, not more than two or three weeks, I would say, that he's had a gun held to his head, uh, a loaded gun held <laughs> to his head, cocked and ready Jeez. to kill him. So, you know, he's going through some stuff. Michael's having quite the time since he's gotten <laughs> out of prison.
3: I can't believe he didn't have to change his pants after that. I would I'd be dying.
2: <laughs>
0: Uh, Let's start. Let's start with Michael and Detective Beckwith or no longer Detective Beckwith. Uh, I want to take a little bit of a lap here because we called the possibility that he was probably not a detective. And maybe that's why we hadn't seen him any longer. And it seems like he's been demoted to a patrolman. So I think that maybe explains, maybe not satisfactory to you because I don't know. I I'm, we're gonna I'm gonna ask you in one second if oh, that was geez. satisfactory to you, but I think it satisfied me as to why we hadn't seen him like we had seen Detective Rudy Cunningham and Detective Nancy Costello and Detective what's the the Baxter Cusack. Cusack and 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 Cusack. Lieutenant Cusack, Detective Cusack. We've only really seen detectives, so this guy is just a patrolman in a squad car working the beat. So that maybe makes sense why we hadn't seen him. Does that satisfy that? Because that that was a little bit of a storytelling issue we had with last week.
3: You know, to be honest with you, because they did such a great job of answering so many questions for whatever reason, this time I'm a hundred percent willing to like, let it go that, you know, he kind of popped up at the end. I know I talked a lot in the last episode about feeling a little like, don't give us a mystery without also making sure we have a pool of the viable suspects. Don't like throw a suspect in at the last second. I guess I'm okay. My heart is actually pretty settled with the fact that we couldn't have figured it out because Beckwith wasn't. wasn't shown to us until his name was already said so we couldn't have figured out the mystery because there was the added mystery of who ordered the hit and you called that and that was a good payoff so there was kind of a trade there on that and i was and i was fine with it because storytelling wise it was all very satisfying
0: the show gets knocked sometimes by people, not by us. I think, I don't think it's really an issue that we have, but I, I see it on social media and, and Reddit and, and Facebook sometimes about the pacing of the show and the writing of the show and the tone of the show. I disagree with all of those things. I think this is a thoughtful crime thriller show and 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 i I think generally it paces well i actually find the dialogue and i find the acting really excellent on the show no more so was that on display for me than the entire ride to nowhere in the back of the cop car
3: the, the way that they chose to do the camera work with, you know, Michael being in the rearview mirror and, you know, the way that he would like look up to him up front and stuff like it was all very suspenseful. I think they did a great job with making us, you know, feel the tension and real stakes. It is episode 17. You know, I, we didn't think Michael would go out, you know, before 20, but you had some real concern that how would he possibly get out of this situation? So I think it was really great. The way that they handled it and and made us feel every bit of like oh my god oh my god i mean it was just when the light hit the beck the beckwith um name badge i was like oh my god i mean of course we knew it had to be him but still it was like oh my god oh my god you know
1: you don't happen to know detective nancy costello do you i'm not sure what department Homicide
2: Gonna ring a bell Is She a friend of yours? Sort of
1: I met her a couple of years ago when she was investigating the murder of my wife
2: I'm sorry to hear about that She solved the case
0: Not yet. I mean, I, even just listening to that clip, and this episode, you really have to watch the facial expressions to to even get more of it. But even just listening to that clip, you sense the tension. One of the questions I had, and and I was like you, I was kind of holding my breath because how is this going to play out? This, clearly, he's not taking him to the station, right? It was pretty obvious he was driving him somewhere around New Orleans. But Michael tips his hand pretty quickly there and i was curious why he would do that is he just so at the i don't give a fuck stage that he's trapped in that car there're no you know there're no door handles to get out from the back seat of a squad car he, right. he's handcuffed he's really at beckwith's mercy yet he's he's tipping his hand he's doing the i know what you know and you know now <laughs> that i know what you know and we're going to look at each other through the rearview mirror really early on cuz that that's really the beginning of his time in a squad car they have a couple of more conversations before they get to the underpass Mm-hmm. Did it surprise you that he would tip his hand, or like I said, do you think he's just at the whatever? I, I'm just like a for answer stage now.
3: I think the second that Beckwith said you're that judge Hairs went up on the back of his neck. And I think that it was more important to him in that car ride, knowing this is likely like my last car ride, my only chance to get any answers to any of this. I think he had to go right in right away and, and start asking questions, start start probing, start seeing what he could get out of him right away and and try to work with that because He I mean, he knew that the clock was ticking, you know, and if you don't ask now, this is it. I I did. I wasn't surprised that he did that because it all felt like the second that the two of them knew, you know, and you could like see the like the synapses like hit like you're the judge, you're Beckwith. And it was like, it was like, all right, start the timer from like when someone's going to wig out here.
0: When the second he tells him to turn off his car after hearing his name, dude, you got to get that text out to Nancy faster, my dude. Like, I know you're an older man and you say things like, and you do duck you instead of fuck you text and stuff, but you got to get the gist out uh, being pulled over, being questioned, help.
3: See, and I, I thought what he might try to pull was somehow try to open the line. Like That's I what was I try- thought too. I thought surely he's gonna he's gonna open the line. He's gonna and buy that for for people who are much younger than us. <laughs> I mean, like you know, start a call so that the so that. Nancy could hear what was happening, especially the way he slid it in his breast pocket, you know, like on his shirt, rather than put it back in his his pants pocket, which is where he always carries his phone. I thought surely maybe that would explain that she could hear where he was and and somehow follow him. I, I had the sense that Nancy was coming, but I misread exactly how he was going to try to use his phone. Instead, you're right. It just turned out to be like fumbling with his
0: phone. Yeah, he doesn't. I mean, because he types out the message about what's happening and like yes, yes, and then he doesn't press send. He puts it back down on the seat, dude. Come on, come. On. I, I think n- understanding
3: how much danger I was in in that second, I would hit send because it feels like, like even, like even. Well, I know you say of course, but I mean, I, I know he was trying to get rid of the phone before Beckwith saw that he was texting anybody. But it would be worth it to me for Beckwith to have seen that I texted someone because, right. for one thing, maybe it affects Beck, Beckwith's choice to take me somewhere else because now he thinks, well, he just told who he was with or something. Do you know what I mean? Like maybe the the jig was up there.
0: Which when he says later on he says, I already told Nancy where I'm going and what I'm doing and it, it gives Beckwith pause. He stops for like a mm-hmm. split second and thinks about it. He's committed to it because I, I, I mean, as far as he knows he's actually pretty well covered here, but just hearing that Michael might have told someone where he is or what he was doing gave him pause about what Beckwith was going to do. So you're right. So maybe even if he sees that the text goes out unless Michael had done one of the latest Apple updates from uh, just a month ago. He can't unsend that text once that text is Ooh. out to Nancy. It's out to Nancy, you know.
3: Right, and I think I think that would be worth it to me. It's like it's like like yelling one last time or something. Like I think it would be worth it to me to try that last time. But like you said, I really think it was just fumbly fingers, and we can certainly understand that. I mean, I can't, I cannot even imagine myself in any of the positions that Michael has been put into. Like we started this with sort of like the, the entire concept was so relatable to you and I, because it was all, what would you do for your child right. and all that stuff. And a lot of this has spun out so far that it's like, I don't believe I will ever be in the back of a squad car because a policeman killed my partner. <laughs> you know, Like I don't believe I it's further away from just the, what would you do for your child sort of base concept but shoot man try to tell people where you are right turn on your location do something
1: it's crazy how little say we get in the biggest moments of our lives when they come for you know that it's my death that led them to I don't know Disgrace judge with a dead family. He already tried to off himself when he was in prison. Now, I think that your suicide is going to feel tragically believable. Let's just get your prints on here. There are only two of us involved, but just so you know... I was the one that got her. Because I could not stop for death. You kindly stopped for me.
0: Afraid so. Beckwith, man, don't respond to Emily Dickinson with afraid so. Gosh. Gosh.
3: Man, can I just tell you, the second that he was like, I'm the one that got her, that actually hit my heart really hard. I don't know why. And this hasn't been a show that you and I have been like, like teary eyed or anything about, even though there's a ton of deaths. And then this is a lot about family. I mean, it's huge about family. And you'd think the two of us would be like, you know, drying our eyes all the time.
0: We're all cried out on our other podcasts. We
3: kind of are. Man, that line, though, it really hit my heart. The total just lack of of any type of, of care or being sorry at all, you know, that that this all happened or anything. Gloating
0: like, about it. The opposite of any kind of yeah, sorrow. that
3: he made it there first, you know, kind of thing. And it was like, oh, my God. God, like it was such a simple line, but it really, it really got me.
0: Can I tell you the thing that hit me the most from that clip was when he says Michael being found having committed suicide in that scenario would be tragic, believable, tragically believable. He's 100 percent right. That actually is the thing that got to me was the the spiral Michael has found himself in, the choices he has made and the consequences of his actions, the little control he has over where he is now even, which is how he starts that clip, how how little control we have over the biggest moments of our lives. I mean that's often true. Think about especially when it's always in a negative way. Think about the people that get sick and cancer and other terminal illnesses. They have no say. They are not in control of the steering wheel. They are they are but a passenger along these these moments.
3: And as a woman, like I immediately went to things like like childbirth, like you're so out of control of the situation in so many ways. It's it like spins your head, you know, how fast you went from like autonomy to like everyone's like a part of this now, you know?
0: When Charlie and Zeke are, we cut to them right before Michael comes in the room and they're they're talking about the statement to release about Rudy, they're distancing themselves as far as possible. They're calling him an unscrupulous police officer and he's one, you know, one bad egg doesn't ruin the whole police force. The way they're running from him and making him just this pathetic footnote of criminality, Michael found dead under an underpass. What does anyone say about him, right? I mean, Rudy was an asset to Charlie for a long time, unscrupulous or not. And this is this is what his footnote's going to be, as far as Charlie's concerned. What does Charlie say about Michael? Disgraced judge, really no friend of mine. You know how 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 quickly we could be cast aside as death stops to pick us up for the carriage ride, and just erased. Well, just erased it.
3: Because, I mean, like, like we don't even have an actress that plays Robin, you know, for us to see or have ever experienced. There's, there's been no, like, flashback memories or anything like that. Like, you know, once she was she was gone, it's, like, erased, you know, from, from our story.
0: That poem, uh, Because I Could Not Stop for Death, uh, is a poem by Emily Dickinson. It was actually first published posthumously in an anthology called Poems, Series 1 in 1890. Uh, the, Emily Dickinson's interesting as a character as a as a person because so few of her poems were published while she was alive she was someone who really didn't wasn't well known at all until well after she was dead but this one always is just a haunting one michael recites the first two lines because i could not stop for death he kindly stopped for me the carriage held but just ourselves and immortality we slowly drove he knew no haste and i had put away my labor and my leisure too for his civility it's depressing, like uh, like and and morose and dark and macabre, like a lot of Emily Dickinson poems are. I think it's on this theme of we have so little control so often at the end moments, right? Even in this poem, death is carrying us on this final voyage. We're not being partners. We're not going into it together. I'm riding along with death, and here you have Michael being this passenger on the Beckwith ride at the end in his final moments until Nancy comes and saves the day. That did that surprise you? Did it surprise you that she was that she was going to use? Being able to track him on Olivia's phone, Olivia finally came through and did something useful by giving him a trackable phone <laughs> uh, to save him.
3: The mechanism by which she tracked him surprised me. I had no part of me was thinking about Olivia's phone and that tracking device. I really thought there was going to be something about him like tra- making that call, plus like you know maybe Beckwith, maybe having called into the station for for when he had, like first pulled him over. Somehow Nancy was going to put it together. I. I I did feel that between his cell phone and starting to text her and her waiting for him and all this stuff, like she seemed like the most likely person to come save the day. She's a smart, smart character who has always been able to like read between the lines and figure out what was happening, even when no one else could. That's the only person my hope was pinned on. But I did not I did not see the Olivia phone come in. Did you see that as the as the reason why Nancy makes it there?
0: I had a fleeting thought when she couldn't get in touch with him, and then she sees the bubbles and then they disappear the focus on the phone made me think that she would track the phone or like try and ping the cell, cell tower. I have no idea how real time that can be done, you know, right. in 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 reality. I mean, I know in, in cop shows and in movies, it's something that is magically happened by the tech nerd, like they're triangulating signals. Right, right.
3: They have to go find the guy who's eating Cheetos. <laughs>
0: right. Every, like, where he's got orange finger dust and stuff. Oh, yes, well, yes, I can do yes. that. Bloop, 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 bloop. Yes. There, I live her, in my mom's basement, you know, that's true. Like, that, that, that
3: Tanner, we need your help. Right. <laughs> (laughs)
0: okay he pushes up his three sets of glasses he's wearing yes yes uh yeah so i I thought of that but by the time it actually came to happen i was like oh wow oh okay she's there you know she 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 did in fact do that I, i imagine olivia's phone was more of like a like an apple find my phone Mm -hmm. Uh, kind of thing. So here's the thing, though. So she shoots Beckwith, right? She she does some mild torture on him. I'm impressed at the restraint she showed in trying to get an answer out of him, right? Because she's about to call it in. And then Michael says, he mentioned a second cop. There's two cops that were involved, him and another cop. And so then she starts trying to get an answer out of him. But she doesn't push it as far as she could, or as far as I feel like other characters on this show. And maybe i'm a bad boy you know i'm in the law but i'm also above the law kind of characters in some in some tropes would trying to like you know put a finger in the bullet hole or whatever she does a yeah. little she does a little bit of it but she he doesn't
3: kicks him in in his belly but but you know you know what struck me about that scene and it's gonna seem a little bit like wow that's what you're looking at when she kicks him michael like winces and as small as that is I found that to be like really reassuring that his good side is in there because this is a, you know, a cop who killed his wife and you know, he's he's in agony after just just about almost killing Michael right in that second. Yet he's still wincing for the guy. He's still he's still empathetic. You know, that wince is an empathy wince of like, ow, that hurt. He's not so numbed out. He's not so malicious or vengeful or or whatever that he wants this man to suffer. He actually still recoils at this man's suffering. That was a good sign to me that maybe, you know, Michael's really still in there.
0: that is a good catch Uh, that's a good catch I don't know that a lot of people are going to make The, the thing I picked up on there's a moment where he scrambles and picks up Beckwith's gun and he starts holding it on him, and it made me think for a second that if Nancy, because Nancy was being a little light touch trying to get an answer about the the cop that helped him, which for Michael is a big deal because Beckwith is not acting alone, and there were answers. Beckwith didn't come up with this hit, so, you know, it came from a higher up. Look at, watch it again, and he kind of he's shaking a little bit, but he's holding his gun on Beckwith. I thought for a second that he may accidentally shoot him or kill him Ooh. or shoot him to try and get an answer out of him, kind of, which would then put him against Nancy. That and all of a sudden, there's a moment there where I think Michael considers shooting back with. If, if, yeah. you, if you watch it again, he grabs it and and turns whips around with it, and his hand is shaking for sure. But he, there there's a little bit of a, of a karmic justice on his face that he's thinking about.
3: Then let's also point out that he did show restraint, and that and that do, that does point out that his humanity is still intact
0: somewhere in there. I think if anything, the, these last couple of episodes have shown that the Michael we all liked and thought was honorable, that your Honor is in there somewhere. the The way he's dealt with Fia and the baby, the genuine sincerity, as impotent as it was in saying I'm sorry to Charlie, and and truly believing that he was trying to help him and protect him in the decisions he made. And then in this episode, and in, in the things you're pointing out, I think it does show that his humanity is in there. That maybe he just needs a reason to live to try and be that man of honor again, versus just a a skin flap in the you know in the- the world with no purpose and no direction.
3: I also like the idea that that there's always time for redemption. There's mm. always time to make the right choice. Yes. You know, I mean, Michael's made a lot of choices that we felt like, oh no, you know, and and he felt like, oh no, why did I go down this path? But here he is. He's in control. He's in possession of the gun, but he doesn't kill the guy. I see a lot of Eugene kind of feels there of trying to maintain some amount of of what's right and what's wrong, and and just because you made. You know, some bad decisions doesn't mean you can't still make good decisions.
0: Here's the thing that I can't get my, my head around in this scene. She chains, uh, Nancy chains Beckwith to the fence and calls the <laughs> EMS. She doesn't tell EMS that the guy is a cop who's been shot. He's left in this most sketchy of underpasses. What is EMS going to do when this guy, when they show up and he's like, I'm a cop, I was shot. They're going to let him go or they're certainly not going to restrain him. I, I, yes, they're going to take him to a hospital. But as soon as like you got to go back and arrest him, Beckwith is not dead. Beckwith is not off the board. Beckwith has to be mm-hmm. reckoned with. They they never circle back to that. Leaving him on the fence for EMS to come pick him up without saying he is a cop who is, should, is going to be under arrest. There's, there's no note. Imagine being the EMT showing up, the paramedic showing up to that scene and be like, what the fuck? <laughs> Shot <laughs> cop here. What is that? What did I, you know, I should have called out sick today kind of thing.
2: Right, I wasn't exactly,
0: even supposed to be exactly. in today. You know, I, I don't know. <laughs>
3: no, it's like the, the guy who has only like three more days till retired Experiment. He's right. like, I'm too old for this shit. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh my
0: god! I wish they got him, uh, Murdoch, to come be the, the paramedic. That
3: would be so awesome.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I uh, uh, joking aside. We have to keep an eye on Beckwith, though, because he is not dead. He is not off the board. And we don't know if he's actually been arrested. Now, this very may well be one of the things Your Honor covers off screen. Lord knows they do plenty of that. We can we can write a book on the things that happen off screen on the show, which, okay, fine. But I would like them to address again who one of the two – the one person who's still alive in this conspiracy, I would like to track where he is at some point in the final three hours because – we're gonna talk about rudy here in a second but rudy is off the table oh Rudy well,
3: he's way off the table he's
0: he's <laughs> he's off the table in a permanent kind of way yeah let's talk yeah, about the sure. let's talk about the unraveling of rudy uh that ends with that final confrontation with nancy in his um house let's play a couple of rudy clips here this is the unraveling of rudy as i saw it, and and let's put them all together
1: sick of this bullshit you gotta let me see it just let me see big mo why, god damn it, I did my part! I I the bricks has got a bullet in him! He doesn't have a home to go to, not in a fucking hospital! If someone knows something! Where the hell is he? What is it? Oh. None I like less than a desperate cop. I want the kid. Oh, does he look like he here? Help me find him. Yeah. He did let me a clue. Um.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is worse for you than it is for me. And why you the only one sweat? we made a deal. Mm. You disappear, the kid, mm. and I find a body. Yeah. It almost seems as if it's a bad idea for a cop to stake his entire career on a handshake with a crooked politician and a
2: gangster.
0: <laughs> Interesting that Mo refers to herself there as a gangster instead of like a drug dealer. I feel like that's an elevated way of looking at herself and and I think says a lot about who she is and how she views herself. But we're not talking about Big Mo yet. I want to focus on the Rudy here. This is unhinged. He is in the thick of the Desire headquarters by himself, literally surrounded by all of the members of Desire. And he is just going off here. I mean, the clip ends, but he says, fuck you, and then spits on the floor before storming out of Bufa's. That is not the kind of rational behavior I think he would ever normally go into that place with. He's starting to lose it in this scene.
3: He's absolutely losing it. He understands the pressure of what's going on, like that this is being unraveled and he has been involved in a lot of things. This is finally the time where he's like looking back at the people who hired him for protection. It's a sad but kind of funny, like tragic kind of choice that he's turning back at the people who he's done all their dirty work and expecting allegiance from them right. to protect him. And it was like, Oh, honey, that was never how this was gonna work. Like the second you were you were made pfft, we don't care, you know. You're out. Like you're of no use to us. We're we're not going to come swooping in and save you. He was it was it was a he was starting off on a false premise <laughs> that they were equally invested in protecting one another.
0: Well, I mean, Big Mo has proved right. I mean, she says to him, "It's the, it's one of the best lines in the episode." She says, "Maybe you shouldn't have staked your entire career on a handshake with a crooked cop and a and a gangster." And obviously, the gangster part of itself proves out. But then you have this clip. How's my favorite detective? Eugene Jones is alive.
1: You sure? Yeah, I'm sure. I shot him tonight, but uh, he got away. Whoa, 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 Slow down. Where is he now? In a hospital. He, everyone's about to find out. Charlie? Wait. Hey, what should we do? Charlie, we are so Fucked.
0: Who's we?
2: What?
1: You're the one who found the dead body.
2: You're the one who took credit for cracking a case you didn't solve. Sound like you in your car. Yeah. I suggest you keep on driving.
0: I mean, and that's the the crooked politician saying you shouldn't have. At the end of the day, Mo is exactly right. You shouldn't have staked your entire career on dealing with Charlie and with me because you you just got double fucked within like a 10 minute period.
3: (laughs) It is pretty foolish to think that they would protect him. He wants it to be true. He wants to think, well, I've done all these things for you. So, you know, you have some allegiance to me. And they're like, we never had any allegiance to you. You're ridiculous. So I didn't feel bad for Rudy. That's not the right word at all. But I kind of want to pat him on the head and be like oh baby is that how you thought this was gonna work out
0: it feels like this it feels like this is what mm. you're this is what you're saying to rudy
1: if it was a fifth we'd all be fucking drunk
3: pretty much yeah and, and, and like just I can't even believe that you thought that these people who would hire you are suddenly going to grow a conscience and come protect you like what are you thinking hey,
0: come on real let's take a step back here you're you're a bad cop in a corrupt way but you're a bad cop in a in a cop way too because the guy you shot you didn't even stay around to see if he was dead or at least to notice that he gets up and runs away now I understand he didn't want to be found at the scene of the crime especially since he had a, a, a silencer on his pistol so he can't easily put it away in a holster, but Good Lord, man! At least make sure the guy, the kid, doesn't get up and run away. Eugene is not winning any track races. I mean, you should have noticed. <laughs> you should have noticed the bleeding teenager running from the scene. The fact that he is so genuinely shocked and has to find out in his car by looking for details on the shooting. He's trying to confirm it that way. Come on, Rudy, you're not even doing basics, and you you've gotten complacent in your job. It makes it funnier later on when he's talking to Nancy about how he used to be a good cop and he used to genuinely care. And and I think if you're gonna keep care about Rudy you're going to care about him after that conversation with Nancy again Rudy not a very good cop he's outsmarted once again by Eugene who all he has to do is start shouting his name in the hospital which proves that Eugene again once again proves that Eugene is the smartest character on this show Rudy that's your plan you're, you're counting on this kid not screaming his name, and it's it's that easily unraveled? Your, pl- your entire plan is unraveled? Were you just going to put a pillow over his face in the ER?
3: It's a good question about what was he going to do. Rudy's working off of like a fake set of rules that he thought everybody else was going by, you know? And so every movie makes seems ridiculous because yeah. everyone else is playing a different game than Rudy at this point, and he didn't know that he got kind of sidelined and is about to become, you know, just collateral damage. Which, you know shit happens What are you gonna do i feel sorry for him because he had elevated himself in his own mind that he was kind of equal like he was like working with not working for all these people he really thought that you know if i call charlie he would of course do whatever for me no honey charlie calls you you don't call him for help he lost his way in the world completely i've i felt surprised though by his
0: outcome that takes us to the end of the rudy story we got to play this final clip the final part of his conversation with nancy where he kind of reviews his life and and it reaches its conclusion one way or another let's take a listen
2: i had a conversation with beckwith you probably found it pretty fucking amusing watching me try to figure out who killed robin desiato
1: congratulations i guess but you're a couple years too late
2: god damn it rudy
1: Put your fucking hands up! If you up. wanna stop me, you're gonna have to kill me. I don't have a problem with that.
2: Yeah. Did you order her hit?
1: She should've just let her go.
2: How'd you know she was gonna be in the store that night?
1: Because I got a phone call. The same phone call I always get when there's a problem. Like, when a judge's car needs to be disappeared. Who? I know you probably won't believe me, but back in the day, I was a really good cop. I took pride in my work. I believed in what I was doing. You
2: kill people for money.
1: I'm not all bad.
2: You're a son of a bitch.
1: I know something's got to happen here.
0: I'm not going to prison. Oof! that escalated there at the end.
3: My feelings went all over the place on that one. Like right? I, I had like a lot of moments during that yeah. whole speech of his that I Even give a lot of credit to, to the writers, man, because they, they took me here and there and all over the place with my feelings.
0: Even listening to that clip again in, in isolation, it really is like, how do I feel about Rudy? I, do I do I actually like Rudy? Am I sad that this is where he's at here at the end? <laughs> I, think, I think I feel a little bad for him. I don't think I like Rudy. I think I feel bad for Rudy at the end of it
3: see and that's because we're empathetic people because <laughs> the, suckers, the deal is that the actor does a wonderful job of delivering those lines you can hear some crackles in his voice some parts to him where you oh, you, but, you hear yeah. the like the little boy part of him of believe like believe it or not i
0: used to be good i used to take pride in it i used to take pride in it he says i
3: mean i think oof. part of it is because i think we've seen these same types of emotions coming out of michael our our main beloved character we've heard a lot of these same sentiments of like this isn't who i Am. I don't want to be making these choices. I was a good guy. And so when having this guy say them, I think they're really borrowing on our sympathy for Michael, honestly, because they're using a lot of the same words. They're like tapping into that part of me that is feeling for all these people who got backed into a corner. Now, Rudy made choices to get where he is. He wasn't backed into a corner in the same way. At least he didn't express, you know, that he was coerced into becoming a bad cop. You know, it sounds Sounded like, you no, know, you made choices along the way that made you a bad cop at the end, a corrupt cop. There was something about his speech there that, like I said, it was really, really tapping into that well of feelings we have for so many of our characters that they just didn't feel like they had any other choice. Now, that's not the case for Rudy. He had choices, I believe.
0: I, I agree with you. I think it's I think it's a good lines and a good delivery by a good actor in a moment, but does not erase the overall person that he is. and and, and listen. People evolve. People are bad and become good. People are good and become bad. And maybe Rudy was a good cop with good intentions and did his job well and honorably 25 years ago. But that's not who Rudy is here at the end of his life.
3: Think about this. I'm sure if you go to the police academy, you are going to find a bunch of people who have no intention of ever becoming a corrupt anything. No one goes into this line of work hoping to become corrupt. It's little choices along the way, you know? The little, the little like, um, the little whys in the road where you made this pick, you made that pick kind of thing. I don't believe that any of our characters started off thinking, I hope I become super corrupt and, and Hurdle a lot of
0: people now i think a question that people are going to have coming out of the scene is the, the camera cuts away before we see who fired or, or or what happened so we have to we're we're left with only nancy's word that he shot himself i gotta ask you what do you think happened inside that house did she shoot him or did he shoot himself
3: I think he shot himself because when he said, I'm not going to prison, and then there was obviously some amount of movement, and she said, put your hands up. He obviously picked up a gun when he said, I'm not going to well, prison. Well, he started
0: to draw his gun. That's where the camera pulls away. He right. re- He's reaching for his gun mm-hmm. when the camera so, pulls So I, I mean,
3: I, I didn't think that. I, she seemed legitimately stunned, too. And I don't think Nancy would act that way if she had shot him. I think she would have come out and been like unbelievable this guy like this is what happened you know but like she came out like stumbling out like oh my god i didn't expect that to happen
0: also if she had shot him in the time that she was in there and whatnot it would have been obvious that she killed him and that he didn't kill himself. This is not where Beckwith had time to take a, a, a test bullet and put Michael's prints all over the gun and the trigger and, and, and have residue, all of that. Like, they, she didn't have time to do any of that. So if she had killed him, it's going to be extremely obvious immediately that she killed him and he didn't kill himself. The other thing is, if you slow down as the camera's pulling away, he's taking the gun out of his holster and his hand is rising straight up. It is not rising out as if he was going to shoot at her Watch it again and, and just isolate the last clip before the camera pulls away. It's going straight up as if it's going to his head, not out as if it, like it would if he was going to shoot her. So I, I agree. I think he definitely did shoot himself. But I know it's a question people are going to be asking and conspiracy theorists and whatnot. So I wanted to address it just so we can nip it in the bud. <laughs> well, we can't talk about Unhinged Rudy without talking about Charlie because this episode and, and what Charlie says to Nancy certainly makes it sound as if Charlie is giving a hit order to Rudy about Robin. Now, as we're about to hear, that's a very different version of the same fact pattern that Charlie gives to Michael so let's listen to the clip and then I think we need to talk about who do we believe and 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 who is telling the truth or is it a combination of things and maybe comes down to nothing more than a horrible miscommunication and some naivete
1: when I asked you to get rid of my car that's who you called right yeah he had Robin killed Turns out that Robin was killed because she was investigating dirty cops. It wasn't a random act of violence. It was a hit. And before Robin left the house that night, I overheard her make a telephone call. Michael. And that call was to you, wasn't it?
2: She wanted to know if I had any contacts in the police department.
1: And you called Rudy Cunningham? Well, I I called the guy I called. I was trying to help her. I had no idea. You didn't connect those dots. If
2: I had known, I, I would have come forward with it. I'm sorry, Michael.
0: Me too. As a threshold matter, I think we have to establish that Michael himself does not seem to be accusing Charlie of placing a hit on Robin. I think Michael is saying that Charlie inadvertently fed Robin to the lions by putting her in touch with the dirty cop who was, in fact, the subject of the investigation she didn't realize. Is that your read on it? And then take it a step further. I'm curious to see what do you think of Charlie's version of the facts?
3: I think that what Michael's taking umbrage with is a little less of the actual, like, phone call in the in the moment, but that the moment that Robin was found dead... How did Charlie not come forward and come to Michael and say, you know, she called me that night? Regardless of the rest of the stuff, like, why wouldn't you come forward and say... I talked to her, you know, at whatever it was, 9 p.m. or something like that, you know, and like the fact that he's even just like didn't even volunteer that part feels like he knows he's guilty that he put her in that position. You and I had talked about and and I kind of argued with you that I didn't ever think that that Charlie was putting a hit on Robin in retaliation for having an affair on behalf of his best friend, Michael. Like, I never thought that was the path. I think that it's reasonable to say Charlie's a smart guy. He gets this call from Robin. He calls Rudy, who he knows is a cop on the take. Robin ends up dead. How do you act like you didn't have any ideas of what could have happened?
0: Right. Even, even as far as helping the investigation along... Charlie has to say in that two-year period, you know, I spoke to Robin that night. She was working on the story. I gave her Rudy Cunningham's number. And then he says what he knows and let the police, let Nancy Costello, let Michael as a judge in good standing at that point, take it forward. Charlie was protecting himself because Charlie had to know or at the very least is willfully ignoring the dots. He's too smart. He's too well connected. He knows Rudy is too corrupted to not have made those connectors himself. I, I, I don't belie that. And and now he seems genuinely surprised here. Uh, he's playing very innocent.
3: I'm gonna stop short of the part of like you know did he purposely put Robin into that position? No, I don't, I don't think, think, so. think
0: so. No, I don't. Well, think but so. But I think there would be fans
3: who do think so. I think some people who watch this and say, no way. I mean, he absolutely did it. Now, one of the things that we have to remember is that if she is investigating crooked cops and, you know, and Charlie's got one on his payroll, then, you know, there is a really natural connection to be like, well, he doesn't want to be uncovered himself either. So it is very much protecting his own interest in getting rid of whomever the reporter was. It's interesting that they made this all so black and white in terms of like it's not like he didn't know who the reporter was he knew the reporter was robin they could have made it even more muddy is what i'm saying is if some sort of anonymous call came to him saying some anonymous reporter you know was doing this and is there anyone they can talk to in the police force like you know what i mean like they could have made it more confusing but no i mean it was robin talking to charlie saying i'm doing a story like it wasn't confusing
0: Now, in listening to Charlie's version of the story, Charlie never says Robin told him what the story was about. Charlie just says in that clip, Robin called me, asked if I had any contacts in the police. So I call the guy I call, which is Rudy. He doesn't say Robin called me and asked me if I have any contacts in the police that may be willing to talk about corruption in the police department or mercenary gang hires. So Charlie, I, I don't think Charlie does anything wrong until after Robin's already dead.
3: I agree with you. That's where the the insult comes in, is that he did not volunteer any information, even simply having talked to her that night. I mean, even that. Could How have been did the police something.
0: not establish that, though? How did the police not pull her cell phone records? She left the house. They Everyone yeah. knew she left the house. Michael leaving the house was the new thing that Nancy hauled him in on. Remember, and Robin leaving the house around nine o'clock at night was well established, no one pulls her cell phone records in the two-year Nancy. This bulldog never pulls it and connects the call to Charlie's phone. Charlie doesn't seem like someone who's necessarily using a burn phone. It's they're two friends. Why would it be suspicious? So yeah. I, I think I think Charlie doesn't do anything wrong until Robin's already dead, and then all of his failings morally and as a friend, come after then. Not coming forward as he was the one who talked to Robin the night that she died. As a friend, how do you not say that, if nothing else? Because I I do think he's in covering his ass mode. If the police didn't uncover... That he was the one who talked to Robin on the cell phone. Why would he come forward if you're trying to protect yourself? Plus the connection to Rudy being dirty. So even if he doesn't make the dot connect the dots, like Michael questions him incredulously here in this clip, even if he doesn't make those dots, there is an element of Charlie is connected to this dirty cop he knows it remember when michael walks into their office him and zeke are burying rudy posthumously with their statement you know one bad cop doesn't ruin all the cops you know they're already distancing him and and burying rudy in the papers charlie knows exactly who he's in bed with so there's definitely a cya aspect to what he does afterwards that's where i think all of his guilt comes from but the question is is that a friendship killer though
3: well, I thought that's what Michael was actually accusing him of is exactly what you just said. Like basically the after the fact, the like how in the world did you not say anything after
0: the fact? Right. He,
3: I think he's actually giving him a pretty giant pass on the like, you put my wife in danger, you know, like right.
0: you put my wife in danger and never talked to me. You were my best friend. You weren't a Robin's best friend. How did you not? How did you? How did you call
3: me right after you hung up with her? Right. I mean,
0: that's like a whole part.
3: Yeah, there's a lot there that I would I would certainly ask of my best friend. I would certainly be like, what the hell? You know, why wouldn't you say anything? The last person someone talks to before they're killed. it, it, It seems like that's like a main question. I'm watching the Murdoch trial right now. Who talked to who, when is a key element of, of a lot of this. So it seems like a question that would have
0: been asked. Even more so, it's Robin's last words out loud. She's shot in the back in Yaya's. She mm-hmm. doesn't talk to anyone, presumably, from when she hangs up the phone and says goodnight to Michael and Adam and leaves the house. Her last substantive conversation beyond maybe goodnight or, and or I love you to her husband and son is her conversation with Charlie. The last words, the last time her voice was heard on this earth was with Charlie and he never said anything. That's a, that's a whole level of guilt, you know, for him to haul around that he doesn't seem terribly affected by. He had, if nothing else, even if he never put the dots connected. I like
3: how you're being like, this is really good.
0: He has to know he had to be one of the last people Robin spoke to before she was murdered.
3: That's pretty key. I mean, in any murder situation, that's pretty key. You asked me if this was a friendship killer. Yes. I think that what they've both done to each other collectively, when you put it all together, makes you realize that perhaps they weren't as good of friends as they thought they were. They were at one point, but, you know, over the years, the judge did what he had to do and that put Charlie in danger. Charlie did what he had to do and that put Robin in danger. And then and then really essentially, you know, the rest of the the, the family, Michael and Adam. To me, I'm, I'm going to go with like mutual annihilation here. Like they both killed whatever was left of their friendship because of choices they made and things that they omitted and and chose not to tell one another that. Ultimately, you can't really claim friends. If you're not going to let me know you were the last person to talk to my wife, you know, before she died, I I think I can't really call you a friend. That's where I'm at. I don't think, you know, the horse around story from being six years old at camp holds up enough against everything here. Remember, it's not just he didn't come forward one time. We talked about when Charlie was sitting at dinner and he got all kind of a little frazzled when those pictures came out of Robin. And again, like he had opportunity after opportunity to say something. I mean, he was sitting at that dinner with Nancy, with Michael, with Elizabeth, who he has this wonderfully sweet relationship with, remember that senator grandma. For anyone who forgets her names, he could look at her in the face and smile and be sweet to her and know he has information it about makes you that.
0: Question, Charlie.
3: Well, yeah, I mean, a thousand percent. This is where I'm saying. Like, they weren't really friends because if you can right. do that, you're not That's really friends with someone. And, and, and here's a
0: crucial here's a crucial difference in friendship killers. What Michael did to Charlie. One, I don't think in any normal normal circumstances, I don't think Michael confesses at all. And I certainly don't think he gives up Charlie. Nancy took advantage of a situation of a man engulfed in grief hours after his son's head bled out on his lap. That has to be given some slack, I think. But even still, the things he did afterwards, the reason he's out of prison and not dead in prison by suicide or bull, is to protect Charlie. And I think misguided as that may be, him working with Olivia, everything he had done to get out of prison, I think was sincerely to protect Charlie, not himself. Again, we talked at the beginning of the season a lot about how Michael has no reason to live. The only reason he initially was still going on was to protect his friend as best as he could to help clean up a mess that he made by making that confession confession the night after the night Adam was killed. Charlie did not do what he did out of protecting Michael. Charlie did not do anything or Charlie didn't do anything out of protecting himself. There's a big difference in violation of friendship. I think there too. They're not, they are not apples to apples. These are apples and oranges. They're motivations. Charlie was protecting himself. Michael has been trying to protect Charlie. I think that's a big difference. Maybe Charlie doesn't see it that way, but as an objective third party, that's how I see it anyway
3: are we objective i don't know are we more on michael's side than than charlie's i'm not sure
0: charlie had been my favorite this this really made me this really made me look at charlie in a new negative light charlie had been i I think i would have told you before this episode i like charlie more than i like michael i agree with you after eugene charlie was probably my favorite character on the show honestly
3: I think he has charisma that absolutely makes you fall in love with him. And there he has such a big, loving, warm smile. I loved the scenes that we had with Charlie. We're going to have to have a little Charlie retrospective now. I love the scenes with Charlie with Adam when he plays Godfather and he's talking to him and trying to, you know, deal with girl problems and talk about all kinds of stuff. But we probably should have understood the fact that he actually went and, like, met up with the teacher and was, like, intimidating to her, we probably should have taken those moments more seriously in terms of, like, what Charlie was capable of. Because they did show it to us along the way. He was alarmed when those pictures came out. That was Robin's last role of of film. We should have said, hang on a second. That seems like he was more involved. Or, you know, again, like, his ability to go and track down the teacher and intimidate her, like, that, He didn't even delegate that out. He did that himself. Like, Charlie was always more capable of things that weren't just, quote, like, helping out, you know, Michael or whatever. Coming back to the whole, it just depends on where you're sitting at the table, what is right and wrong, and what seems to be, like, the things you need to do and the justifications that we all come up with. I mean, I think this friendship, to me, it feels pretty imploded <laughs> because it's all too like high stakes I don't I don't think you can go back to this what do you think do you think that they could make amends at
0: some point maybe I mean he, we talked earlier in this episode about redemption and how Michael is behaving now is a is a credit towards maybe redemption is never too late maybe Charlie can do something or make some over overt, overt acts for Michael that helps move towards reconciliation but i think when he says as he turns his back i'm sorry too i think that's michael saying at least as of right now this is all done i think i think i'm sorry too is about their friendship as as much as about anything else in that conversation
3: i agree with that i do i and, and it's too bad because again this is a relationship that we really We really loved, you know, I mean, it's it's hard to find men who have great friendships on the screen and they seem to have this like lifelong, you know, have each other's backs. I guess the have each other's backs part is the part that we always take as a positive. And in reality, if you're somebody who who is like really intent on having someone else's back, you probably are pretty intent on covering your own ass. That's probably the part we, we should have been more scrutinizing you know like what if he's willing to do all this for michael what is he doing for for himself to get himself ahead Mm -hmm. we didn't ever really really scrutinize that part
0: fuck me lee's back lee's back and (gasps) lee lives in a really nice apartment yeah
3: but eugene wrecked that couch yo oh
0: yeah lots of blood on it And, and he's such a sweet boy he starts to say i think he starts to say something about getting blood on the couch when he first comes in and she just tells him to sit he's he's such a good kid are you happy lee's back are you surprised lee's back i mean this was a real come from the grave moment for her seeing eugene at her door
3: well, as we get into this section, I, I we have a write-in from uh, Paul from Queens, and I wanted to read this into to this portion because I feel like this is a good question. So it says, I wonder if it's intentional that the bloodiest violence in the show is is reserved for children. Adults are shown bloodied a little, but Eugene, Adam, and Rocco all have had very bloody on-screen injuries, while Kofi, Lil Moe judge d and other adults are just slapped around not showing rudy commit suicide made me think of it if it's too late in the narrative to introduce the idea that nancy would have shot him and then called it a suicide so why not just show it we've seen a lot of other violence but it's all with the kids that it gets very bloody and gory So what do we think about this? This is a this is a great time to talk about this, because here's Eugene bleeding out all over the couch. We've never seen that, say, with Jimmy or Big Mo or anybody else like they're never bleeding out all over the place. It's the kids, Terrence, all these guys. So what's up with this?
0: Narratively, metaphorically, it's a great comment. It's a great observation and and a nice 10,000 foot view watching all of the kids interact in the show. I, I think narratively and metaphorically, for me, it would be the idea that kids pay pay for the sins of their adults in their life. Adam pays for Michael's sins and well, for both of his parents' sins. Right? I was
3: gonna say Robin's too. Ro- really.
0: Robin, Robin got herself into a situation, and Michael and Robin's relationship not being as strong as as they would have liked, and maybe Adam would have liked, led to Adam heading down to Yaya's that day, and and then everything that followed from there. His relationship with Franny, a teacher in a power position, was part of that calculation, and and. And and the choices that he made. Rocco is a a Baxter. Rocco is given a a present that he probably wasn't prepared for. Remember, Adam was not paying attention to the road, but Rocco, it always appeared like Rocco came into his lane more than Adam came into Rocco's lane.
3: It seemed like he lost control a little bit, like he was going too fast. Because if you remember, right before they they kind of show a scene where he's like, like he like really like guns it, you know, which is why he's on these abandoned streets down in the lower. 9th because he was in these area because there wasn't a lot of traffic. So he was like, you know, kind of like racing
0: around. But even if we're not pointing to specific acts that they're paying for the the sins of their parents, karmically they're paying for the sins of their parents. And and certainly uh, Gina and Jimmy have plenty karmic sin for Rocco to be paying for. Terrence paying for the sins of his older brother and Big Mo and their drug racket. Eugene paying for the sins of desire and Kofi and little Mo putting him in that position. So it's this idea of, I'm not going to take it out on you. I'm going to take it out on this innocent. And that makes it worse. That makes it hurt worse.
3: That's where I will. I want to focus on. Kids in TV shows often are the embodiment of innocence, of honesty, of hopefulness, trying to make, you know, somewhat like these better choices, those types of things, right? Those are all like a little kid when we're thinking about it, like they're trying so hard to just stay innocent for the most part, right? So when we go through this and it's like the embodiment of what is good in the world is the one that's constantly getting the worst beatings and the worst. Outcomes like these i mean all these kids are are either on death's door or have died I, i mean there's something about that that feels right like because we're talking we talk a lot about the adults trying to like hold on to some amount of humanity hold on to some amount of like being a good person and the children are the embodiment of what is a good person, right? They, they haven't gotten to the point of being a, a bad guy yet. All of them dying feels like kind of chipping away at like the honesty, the goodness in the world, the the hope that you have that these people can can be better. The fact that Eugene is hanging on so long and didn't die, that's probably an interesting conversation now as we get into this in terms of like, what
0: do we think? One of the most famous stories coming out of the old Testament is God tells Abraham to take his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. And Abraham, being a good follower, does. And he takes him up there and he's about to land the killing blow when God stops him and says he's proven his faith. And Isaac is an innocent and, and his father's about to pay with his pay with his blood to show his fealty to God. It, it's literally one of the oldest stories going back 7,000 years on this earth of we make an innocence pay for our mistakes and and your honor is catching that in in very darkly lit new orleans in the 21st century
3: i think you can also monitor it as like like as people died things got worse as the children died the integrity of all the adults was worse and worse and worse they made like worse and worse and worse choices michael hung in there l- as long as he could i mean he really turned once adam died like it's like then it's like you have another kid mm-hmm. we still have little baby rocco as like our potential like okay he is still the purity here right and he he's introduced back at the end of this episode so it's like here here we have we have a fresh start where we have another innocent here for you to start from the beginning what are you going to do with that yeah so let's get back to Eugene and Lee. Let's get back to it. Jump jump back to Lee's
0: bloody couch. Well, one, where where is this in New Orleans? I didn't get a chance to look up scouting reports, but I need I know they established in season one that Lee had a very high power law firm job and that she would take pro bono clients like Kofi and then like Eugene as part of her her personal commitment to the law but that she had a very big white collar law firm job. This is a very nice looking apartment. I, I, I never thought of New Orleans as being a place with like large skyscrapery type apartments but it feels like this I'm curious where this is supposed to be set in New Orleans. I was very impressed with how it looked. Couch, bloody couch notwithstanding. So if anyone out there knows or anyone out there is familiar We'd love to hear from it because I'm personally curious. Eugene just continues to be this uncorruptible innocent. The thing that struck out for me from this scene, this this scene where he's bleeding in her apartment, besides her OBGYN friend being extremely chill and, and dealing with the situation that I would not have wanted anything to deal with, was right before he passes out from blood loss is I didn't mean to shoot him. This is what Eugene is thinking about as he is laying dying himself. He's 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 looking back a year to killing Adam and his words to Lee. His confessor is I didn't mean to shoot him. What a poor sweet baby. This is what he's worried about with all the shit Eugene has gone through and been put through. These are the words. These are the thoughts in his mind. Man, it it's like, that's the kind of thing that makes me teary.
3: I thought it was incredibly sweet that the OBGYN friend continues to try to help like she she wants to make this safe again like you know adults making choices i mean look at lee and and the doctor friend here they're looking at each other this is this feels like a mini version of like michael and charlie like looking at each other it's like what have you got me into you know like what kind of friendship do we have that you're like dragging me into your shit you know like there's like these little moments here of like testing your friendships in order to try and help a situation i was so happy that Lee came back into this because I could not imagine who was left for Eugene to go running to. I I couldn't come up with it. I know I've been to New Orleans, so I'm familiar with, with, with the area better. There are definitely, like, luxury areas that have, like, maybe not, like, tall, huge, you know, 30- story skyscrapers but certainly large ones that they could have been depicting Lee's I really felt like Lee is so important to the Eugene story like she's the one constant who has just been really fair with him and and true to this bitter end that we're getting to like she she when she throws her body across him in the hospital mm. I mean, wow! I mean, again, if you look at the children as the innocents, and you look at them as as the the ones that we're all supposed to be protecting, Lee is the one who really came through. That's
0: a huge moment, non dialogue wise. I think it's one of the best moments of this entire episode, which was full of great moments. Her I agree. her her sprinting back in slow mo and draping herself over. Just purely on putting it together really quickly, one plus one, Eugene screaming his name and seeing Rudy without caution or regard for her safety, throwing herself on top of him. That's a huge fucking moment. If, If you're talking about who here is a protector of the innocents.
3: To, to the bitter end like i said like because this was getting more and more and more dicey you know like she knew to trust eugene on some level but this was still crazy like she was still trying to like hash this out like what what in the hell actually happened here and yet she didn't let that like not having every single answer stop her from protecting him and i think that that part is like amazing so many people have to have to know all the all the whys before they're willing to step in she was going to literally throw herself in front of a bullet and ask questions later.
0: Yeah, and even before then, I mean, it's using lawyer jujitsu, but she's still, she's advocating the hell out of it. And and I think starting to, to make that cop uh the The hospital security Guard wonder whether or not he should go unlock him by threatening to sue everyone and their mother and name him as a defendant <laughs> i mean yeah. that's that's not throwing yourself in front of a bullet, but that but is it, but it that's is. using your skill set to to advocate as best you can and and if we're not here to advocate for for those that need it, what are we doing right?
3: What do we think about the state of Eugene like so we thought like last time all right, so he was shot high enough up he's not even responsive there for a while. What do we think about? the fate of eugene right now i mean does he pull through to the end i think i feel like at this point he has to or else like i feel like this story is gonna like deflate and make me feel like oh my god like nobody survived you know
0: so the bullet wound is not going to be the issue for him. I, I, I think once he gets blood in him and is given time to mend, I think, I think the issue for Eugene is that we hear from Cusack talking to Jimmy on the speakerphone is that he's been arrested. And Jimmy hangs up and Gina says, you're satisfied with that outcome. And Jimmy says, I'm satisfied that the threat has been neutralized. Boil that all down. Eugene is headed back to the same jail that his brother went to. Mm-hmm. the parallel there Who's to say that Eugene's fate is going to be any better than Kofi's fate? Kofi didn't come back out of jail. Out of, well, out of, he was being held in a prison. But Kofi didn't come home from when he got arrested for something that he didn't really do. And now Eugene is literally following in that same pattern. And this is a thing in real life. Right? Arrest rates and they, they run in families. And and, and and certainly neighborhoods. Right. Generationally, you see patterns being repeated. Here, I think we're all very emotionally invested in Eugene.
3: He's got to be like almost the last man standing, doesn't he?
0: You would hope so. You would hope so. But this show has not catered to being kind this show has catered to trying to be realistic the idea of eugene being in like an orange jumpsuit and shackling down to a holding cell he's still he's still a kid he's not going to be going to juvie but he's the age of someone who should be in juvie not in like gen pop jail right that has to reduce his 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 survival odds unfortunately
3: i want to be clear especially for other listeners and whatnot so why would eugene go to jail for doing what
0: he was going to jail for shooting at Rudy.
3: Okay, but Rudy's dead. So why would he go to jail?
0: Mm, he was also for for killing adam there you go
3: because people are gonna sit there and think like why would he be going to jail what are you talking about mike because he's still a wanted fugitive essentially for killing adam we have to remind ourselves that
0: right before the time jump in the first episode of this season you have charlie giving that press conference that public enemy number one has been apprehended and put down and is no and the city's no longer under threat he's talking about Mm -hmm. eugene there as the murderer right. of his godson Adam, so I'm going to dedicate my mayorship to Adam's memory and yes. blah blah blah, yes, and, yes. and lying about my involvement in Robin's death.
3: I remembered all of this. It was I was like sitting here thinking, like if I was like a listener and I and I'm not and I don't watch the show as tightly, you know, as you and I do. We don't. We take notes. We're watching it multiple times. Would I be like thinking, why is Mike talking about Eugene going to jail? Like, what are these charges against him? Why would he be going anywhere? We have to remember uh, quite a lot, a lot of episodes ago, but you have to remember. 7 episodes ago. You
0: also have a new charge of Carlo member saying that Eugene tried to kill him in their car accident, mm-hmm. which is a whole new set of charges. So Eugene could be looking at a lot of years of prison uh, truly for no crime that he actually well he did kill Adam. He did but, kill Adam. But he attempted to kill Carlo and then Carlo <laughs> was saying he attempted to kill him again. The parallel to his brother and the way this show works makes me very worried that he actually in fact doesn't make it to being one of the last men standing.
3: I, I agree with you. I keep thinking of the scene where he's walking and he has like this, um, earbuds in or headphones on. I can't exactly remember. And he's like snacking on something. And he's, I think looking at a comic book or whatever, and he's walking towards this house and the house blows up. I'm having the same anticipatory feeling of like, you, like, okay. So Lee threw her body over him. He's yelling. Rudy is now neutralized. Everything that's happening feels like Eugene bebopping with the headphones towards the exploding house. You know, like I'm getting that same like kind of feel. And that is that we're going to be blindsided just like in that scene.
0: I think we also have to remember, too, when we're looking at corrupt cops. Cusack is the one left standing right now, and he is the Baxter's corrupt cop. So Desire, Charlie, none of them have a corrupt cop that we know of in their pocket to call upon. The last defender for Eugene, police-wise, to stand up against Cusack and being a mouthpiece of the Baxter's is going to be Nancy. We're going to, Lee is going to need to get Nancy on board with trying to save Eugene from a fate worse than death. <laughs>
3: This is hard. I'm yeah. really
0: I'm really worried about the just the the, the parallel to his brother is just too great to ignore safety wise. And the fact that Kofi never made it out. Three hours left. Uh, it's a I'm lot. worried about. It. It's a lot. Before we move yes. off to the hospital, I wanted to give a little love out to the charge nurse. Uh, I, yes. I thought she was great. I thought she was real mama bear energy. The way she stood up to the security guard, the way she listened to Lee yes. and, and called in the false gunshot report. And also the actress playing her is named Killebrew. One name. And I thought that was pretty awesome. Killerbrew. This is Killerbrew's only acting credit in IMDb.
3: Oh, I love it. I love it. You know what? I I so appreciate when when a human gets another human in one of those moments like when lee is pleading with her with her eyes like just do this for me and the nurse just goes with it and and later on when confronted is like "eh, clerical error what are you gonna do you know like move on this is busy it's an er like get get over yourself so what i made a mistake whatever man everyone needs a friend like her everybody
2: i have a very
1: good night for us Told all that shit, sprinkled it throughout the city, and somehow the one body that dropped, dropped dead in the middle of this aisle. Who? Chris' little brother, Terrence. Fuck. Oh, 13 years old. not half a fucking balloon. Thought I cut it enough. Mm-mm. Ain't your fault Chris ain't clean up his own house. I left a balloon for a child of mine. That ain't on you.
3: I love that sultry, bluesy jazz music playing in the background. Like, it makes me, like, squiggle in my seat. Like, as she's talking, I was like, squiggle, squiggle. Because I love it. It's so sexy and sultry and, like, mmm. I love that I don't know. I know you're a music lover. I don't know if that particular genre hits your heart, but it hits mine
0: It's the kind of music that just makes you feel like you should be sweating. It feels like <laughs> it, it feels like a hot summer night,
3: <laughs> okay, yeah. You know, it
0: feels like it feels like uh, like a summer night that's very warm. That's the okay. kind of music that plays there. If, if you're okay. Associating see, and I was a going
3: feeling. a different I was going a different route there with your sweatiness. But, uh, but oh, no, yeah, well, yeah. that
0: leads to it all. <laughs> you know, it, it, the body's see, touching it, skin. It, yeah. I just yeah. see
3: people on a dance floor dance like slinky dancing, you know, real slow and and sassy. Oh, I love it. It's mm, New Orleans is a fun place, man. We should go sometime on a Your Honor uh, field trip. Oh
0: my God. We absolutely need to do a Your Honor walking tour trip uh make yes. that a, a business write-off uh for sure
3: absolutely <laughs> yeah i'm for it
0: let's talk about this clip this clip really I, I talked earlier about how i lost a lot of respect for charlie in this episode a, a favorite of mine big mo also all series has been a favorite of mine i love i love the assertive badass you know i don't give a shit what you think attitude she's had but i really didn't like this at uh, this position she's taking here Bl- Blaming everyone but herself for what happened to Terrence, putting it on Chris, not on her, not taking responsibility and having a real woe is me energy, maybe really lose some respect for Big Mo. And and I've been a staunch staunch supporter of hers. Tied to turn in after that clip. I really don't like it.
3: Good leaders don't blame all their soldiers every time something goes wrong. And I think this is a situation that we have seen coming from miles away that once she split her focus and I mean, please she's spending practically this entire season in the club versus in Bufas, you know, we've seen her a lot in there. And and just, just that physical location tells you where her mind is and where her energy is being put. Big Mo has absolutely lost all control. And I, I don't, I don't see her making it out
0: of this season, frankly,
3: maybe she'll jump in front of Eugene metaphorically
0: I, I doubt that i don't think big mo's got that in her i think she's so committed to protecting herself right now i don't think she could jump no in redemption
3: no nothing she can't have a moment
0: redemption realizes that you've done something wrong or that you have mm-hmm. hit a rock bottom and when i'm talking about a r- unraveling as an episode theme i think big mo is starting to feel unraveling but not about what happened to Terrence and Chris? I, I think she's being defiantly, not my fault. Like what was me about that? I think she's unraveling a bit because of the Baxter issue. Cause after that clip I just played, russ jumps on piles on and says i gotta tell you and he tells her about being t-boned by carlo and eugene getting away that's the first time she has a worried look on her face for something that is in her sphere that's Mm -hmm. the first sign of her of of the unraveling um which which leads to then this conversation between jimmy and her which i think is going to be big most focus for the rest of the season which has its own questions let's take a listen
1: We'll be sure and bring him to justice.
0: (laughs) Oh, uh, I
1: think we're beyond justice at this point. Jimmy, you said you'd take care of your boy and I'd take care of mine. Apparently you didn't hold up your end of the bargain. And your boy could use a good ass whooping. So where that leave us. I took you at your word. It's foolish on my part, I know. That won't happen again. This uh, detente of ours, that was a, a gesture of goodwill on my part, a gift from me to you, and that can be dissolved. So you see, I had confused. You ain't the only one with guns. And a ceasefire, just like the fucking tango, takes two.
0: It's true. It's very hard to tango by yourself. You just look a little funny if you're trying to tango by yourself. So she's not wrong there. (laughs) We got a coming war. We have a coming war. The detente is over. We have a coming war between the Baxter family and Desire gang. Based on what's happening in this episode, based on a prediction that you made episodes ago, I'm curious if Big Mo is going to have the support of Desire to wage that war.
3: I don't think she does. I mean, I don't don't think she can trust the people who are left, really. I mean, she was was person non grata in Chris's house. She has lost all the respect if she had any with any of the extended sort of like next level out from her like inner circle. I I just don't see anybody willing to step forward and, and, and certainly not like take a bullet for her.
0: Right. I think it's very telling the reception, the 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 tale of two moes. The Tale of Two Moes. She goes to the Carter house, and he is not welcome there. I don't want that woman in my house. Chris's mother says. Chris takes the cash, but doesn't want it. You know, the um, so this money that my, that killed my brother. I'm supposed to use to bury him. Now he won't shake Russ's hand. You know, he tells Big Mo, "You're not supposed. You shouldn't be here right now." Like that's all pretty defined stuff. Now Big Mo takes that in stride, and she says, "I'll call the funeral home." She gives him a lot of cash and says, "You take care of Desire." I desire to take care of you does it though i don't think desire is doing a very good job of taking care of any of its members right now certainly not terrence carter
3: where would you run to like would you run to boofas if you needed help where are you running to the club like where are you running to I don't. i don't feel like she has like this like den of like answers <laughs> where you should just run to and, and get all the help you need like you First you got to go track her down, figure out where she's at. And then good luck like actually getting a chance to to have any real conversation.
0: Yeah, so you have that, in, and, and then Tale Two Most continues because Little Mo shows up to pay his respects, and he gets a teary reception.
3: Weren't you surprised to see him?
0: I'm very curious about whose bathtub is he in. Good question. What do you think, what did you take of him staring at his desire tattoo? What's the significance there? I have a theory, but I'm curious what yours was.
3: Well, so it looked kind of like mutilated, right? So did they try to, like, scrape it off or, like, cut it off?
0: I didn't take that.
3: Oh, see, I thought it was like kind of like Yellowstone, like we're going to like cut the brand off of you or whatever. Like, oh, I, I think he was this just was all like, fucked
0: up and then being thrown onto the ground rolling out of a moving car.
3: Maybe someone purposely scraped at it, or maybe just the altercation in general scraped it off. But either which way, I think if that represents his loyalty to desire, it's minimal at best. Whatever's left of the tattoo is how much loyalty he has left.
0: Well, that's a good question, though, because is it that he no longer has loyalty to desire or he no longer has loyalty to Big Mo. Uh,
3: Well, I'm... still saying Desire as Big Mo, but, mm, but you're I very... Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. I, I I appreciate the fact that we may be uh, changing over the CEOs as, as A we're classic
0: Mo as it may <laughs> yes, be.
3: Yes,
0: yes. <laughs> because you, you can't ignore this clip. So he shows up at the Cotter house. He gets a very teary hug and reception from Mrs. Cotter. Chris embraces him, and then these two have a conversation. And note, while you're listening to this, dear listeners, that difference in taking responsibility from Big Mo's clip where she's talking to Russ and she puts it on Chris for her brother's death listen how Little Mo handles the same topic
1: I should have fought harder to flush that poison when I had the chance me too no. it's not on you
2: nah it's on Big Mo she care more about that fucking club than her own people Speech
1: family. I'll keep you and yours in my prayers. Hi. Right? Hey. She can't get away with this shit forever.
0: Little Mo takes responsibility for actions that he actually ended up having nothing to do with, and he is rewarded with Chris's loyalty and a threat, like an overt threat against Big Mo. Huge. It's a huge clip.
3: It absolutely is. And and again, I think that Little Mo has always had the little more compassion, a little more empathy, definitely a little more of a soft spot for the kids. We said he was like a little bit of a kid himself, like mm-hmm. remembering where he lived and then like eating cereal together, watching cartoons. He had sort of a little more of a, I don't know if it's just sort of arrested development or what, but he he had a little more of a soft spot for kids. So I could see where this would come off extremely genuine to Chris. And, you know, he knew that Lomo had been fighting to keep Eugene safe. So, of course, he would be trying to step up and keeping Terrence safe as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're, we'll we talk about questions for next week and what's left in the season at the end. But this one, guys, you got to put this one on the board. Yeah, Uh, there is there's internal war coming to to desire as as sure as there is war coming between desire and the Baxter family. This is going to be one of the big blockbuster topics, I think, going into the final three hours of the show. Speaking of the Baxters, I think we have to get to them. They're really the last ones we haven't really talked about. What did you think of Gina's reaction to Frankie not being around? Jimmy is very tight-lipped in this episode. He just, he doesn't say whether Frankie is dead or not. He just says he doesn't work for the family anymore. Gina's whole tract <laughs> is he was a friend. She she kept saying he was a friend, not that he was an employee, not that he was good at his job, but he was a friend
3: us as hell it makes me really think they were sleeping together or had slept together at some point because she definitely her response was like whoa whoa, what like my guy's not around anymore what the hell's with that but i super loved when she was like you didn't want to consult me and he was like not particularly (laughs) i was like score and then later on
0: says i think i knew where you stood with your feelings on frankie (laughs) because she repeats it. You didn't want to feel the need to converse. He's like, no, I, I knew what your opinion was going to be. You you had lodged. I had gotten your notes in the, uh, in the <laughs> suggestion box. Thank you.
3: Exactly. Exactly. We all read your comment card. Gina <laughs> loves Frankie over Jimmy. Got it.
0: Right. You signed his name with a heart over the eye. Yes. We all understood.
3: We all saw her notebook in study hall. She was all like Gina plus Frankie equals Gina forever. And Frankie
0: sitting <laughs> in a tree. K-I-L-L-I-N-G. Oh, look at you. Yeah. See, look I at li- you. I did a little take wow. on that one. Uh, but so I agree with you. It's sus as hell. Maybe, in fact, they did sleep to each other. But man, would that have been dumb on Frankie's part. I, I talk about playing with fire if he had actually done that and been so stupid. But maybe it's also it because she knew she could get to Frankie and, and go around Jimmy and have her oh, bidding yeah. be done. So yes. maybe it wasn't actually sexual as much as it was just power dynamics.
3: Oh, 1,000%. He was one of her soldiers, and she got, she got cut off at the knees, you know? He, he de-armed her, you know? I mean, shit, that was, like, eyes and ears on the on the situation, and someone who was willing to constantly talk to her about it.
0: That's the Baxter theme of this episode, though, of Jimmy finally, if nothing else, cutting Gina off at the knees. She He took out Frankie, which is a huge blow to Gina's power execution, right? She didn't do anything herself. She would have Frankie carry out her orders around or behind Jimmy's back he finishes and he seals the deal with the Calabrese. he makes a deal on his terms you, you got to accept it right now on the phone the deal is you can use our docs all manner of people will pass through here but only for the life of the loan take it now while we're on the phone and Philip Calabrese does. Done. That takes out Gina's father, but it it cuts Gina off at the knees. The masterstroke of everything Jimmy does in this episode, though, is that he embraces and promotes Carlo to a substantive position in the family. And the look he gives Gina and Gina gives him when he's hugging Carlo over Carlo's shoulder. chef's kiss chef's kiss because that's really the last card she has to play is being able to control carlo and his emotions jimmy embracing him though fuck fuck what is gina gonna do
3: i don't even know i don't think she has many cards left to play i really don't there's a lot of moments here where she gets shut down and she she's just looking around like huh. Ah. <laughs> But Gina's not one to take that laying down. I have to think given three more hours, she's going to have some other hidden cards somewhere. She's got something very violent, suffering for all.
0: There will be violent cards she turns over. <laughs> you got to love be Jimmy, like though.
3: a sickle and like the Grim Reaper. And those are the cards.
0: Except for they're all in the face of her father. It's gonna be it's exactly. gonna be the Grim Reaper in the face of Carmine Conti with a sickle. You know Jimmy is feeling his oats in this episode. Look at how he's eating that dinner with gusto. Food sounds aside, he is eating that spaghetti <laughs> like a man who has been on a deserted island for a year.
3: That was crazy how he was like, nom, 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 nom. and the way that Gina and, and um, Carlo are just staring at him with this combination of like confusion, disgust, gross, dad, like nasty. Also, I like to think in that whole scene, there's one point where Carlo is like curled up in a ball on the couch. He looked like a toddler. Like I was like,
0: what? He's a, a great A Muppet
3: how many adult men like curl up like that like he he like had his knees up to his chest like it was a mess there now
0: the question that i'm not sure about and i think we have to see how it plays out a little bit more is this promotion this embracing of carlo is he technically putting him in frankie's position is carlo now the formal head of baxter family security which was frankie's title oof i feel like that's It feels like too much. Bitch
3: of a stretch. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I mean, not, but it would also be weird if suddenly Jimmy brings in some new lackey, like that seems wrong. See, okay, hold on. I'm going to back this up a little bit. This Lack of Frankie creating a complete void in the Baxter family posse makes me really long for my my questions to have been answered last season or even a couple of episodes ago. Like, where's the rest of the henchmen? Why are there only one that we ever get to see? Like, there should have been like five or six to where we would say, well, you, you know, Jojo's just going to step up now, you know, and be the Frankie now. There's no one else because they don't show this crew of people that that he has.
0: Yeah, I feel like in season one, they showed the occasional henchman that would be in the room with Frankie.
3: There'd be people... Standing to the side, right. yes. And I took those guys to be kind of security. I took them.
0: Well, I took them to be Frankie's guys. They, they were they were yeah. security under Frankie because we learned Frankie here was head of family security because that's Jimmy's line right. is. And, and I haven't felt the security, the family's been very secure lately, which is his, co- <laughs> his code for relieving Jimmy, uh, Frankie of his duties. So, but it seems like too much to promote him to that level. It does seem like it's going to be more than just, it's going to get carlo out from watching uh, security cameras in the baxter house i guess
3: so do you think frankie's dead or you think frankie is like at the
0: unemployment office well that is a good question that is one of the unanswered questions as we end this episode is unclear if frankie is dead he looked real fucked up at the end of that episode at the end of last week's episode he was in bad bad shape maybe it doesn't matter it would only matter if he is still alive and that Gina recruits him to come back.
3: To, like, pop back up, right? But
0: with three hours left, that doesn't seem right. I, I feel like Gina is going to pivot because I think you're right. Gina has to retaliate from in this way because she's she can't take being hamstrung this way. I think she's going to retaliate using her father. So I think one of the big questions to consider is we are now having... Big Mo and Jimmy declaring war on each other in this episode, but Big Mo may not have desire to fight for her. Jimmy may not have the Baxter family to fight for him. If the Baxter family is in fact, all of their soldiers are in fact Conti men, Gina may either appoint herself the general and remove Jimmy from the fighting field, or just may withhold them altogether.
3: I like all of those things because I, I definitely think that Jimmy's going to end up somehow like the cheese stands alone because he doesn't. There's no one left on his little team, you know.
0: Right. Well, it's the parallels. This show this show lives and dies with the parallels. So what's happening to Big Mo would make sense for it to be happening to Jimmy also.
3: I would say, and is happening to Michael as well. I mean, he he doesn't even have Charlie anymore.
0: You have all these emperors without clothes just standing there. Um, mm-hmm. As it turns out, uh, I, I would be remiss if. I didn't play this clip because it's been making me laugh. So we go. This is this is Gina. I couldn't
3: wait for you to play this clip. I, I love this clip. It is me. It is me.
0: It's Gina <laughs> at her most exasperated. Caroline at her most exasperated when I don't stop talking.
2: I'm finding your tranquility rather irritating
3: it's not when you're talking too much. It's it's when I'm pissed off about something and you stay real cool about it. That's exactly how I feel. I find your tranquility rather irritating. <laughs> like that's exactly, I mean, beautiful, beautifully written, beautifully actually executed. I mean, really, mm, that was...
0: I can't see anyone else playing Gina. Hope Davis delivers and embodies this character so well that takes like four seconds for her to say. That is something that any normal person would have said in like a second or two. She she just makes it such a meal in such a delicious way. Even the, just the phrasing, I, I I rather irritating. It's it's just so it's so funny. But you honestly feel it. Do you feel her irritation coming through it? It's coming through your speakers even as you're listening to it. (laughs)
3: it really makes me laugh because it's so familiar (laughs) especially with you you stay so calm when i'm telling you things that like piss me off and i'm like i'm so upset about this and you'll be like everything will be okay it'll be all right and then i'm all like (laughs) Like, i find your tranquility rather irritating like uh. (laughs) oh
2: i'm finding your tranquility rather irritating
0: i'm gonna email you that clip so you can put it on your phone like a soundboard
3: and not only have it on the soundboard though i need like one of those like things i can clip on like my key my keychain so that yeah. i could just play it at any given time
0: i'm, gonna, I'm gonna go to a build-a-bear and have it put in its chest you could just squeeze it
3: yeah that would be kind of amazing
0: <laughs> tranquility bear will call him
3: it's just it sums it up so well. Now I know we've all been in this position where we're riled up about something, and you're talking to somebody, and they are staying way too cool to the point where you're like, "Are you even listening to what I'm saying?" Because you can't possibly know the situation and be so calm right now. I mean, we've all been there, right? Certainly, you've wanted to like scream this at someone. Oh,
0: sure, it's common. It's it's the exact emotion when you're at a different level than the person next to you. As buoyant as Jimmy is, as getting his groove back. Back as Jimmy is, the one thing he doesn't have a good response to, and Gina is just cycling through all of the issues she could be pissed off at Jimmy about, because she always has a list of things that she is upset about how he's handling them, A A through double Z, <laughs> is Fia fear remains a problem for the baxter parents because they don't know where she is they look for her she is she is in the wind in this episode
3: listen here when that camera zoomed in on that baptismal outfit in the crib i squealed and hooted and pointed at the TV and stomped my feet. I was like, burn to the nth degree. Like, you really know how to shove this in their faces. I thought it was brilliant. And could you capture a teenage girl's vile, like, nasty little, like, ram? <laughs> They captured it. They got it dead on. Were you shocked to see that little tiny suit there?
0: Yeah, I I was shocked more just because it felt very funerally. Oh, you were kind of grossed out? Not grossed out, but unsettled. It felt very much oh. like this baby isn't here anymore. Ah. Right? The empty suit and shoes in the empty crib. It struck me Ooh. that way. I'm, okay. I'm forever paranoid about the loss of children, though. I, oh, um, no,
3: don't say that. Yeah, well, don't. You know what's the good news? Note you know what I say to myself all the time? What? I have 2020 20, and 19, and you have almost 15. Mm-hmm. Those are the kiddos. What I say to myself all the time is I got them to 18 and nothing happened. (laughs) They were not kidnapped. All these horrible things that you worry about kids all the time. Like, those were the big worries. And it's like, I literally said it to them out loud. I was like, I got you to this point. Like, victory! (laughs) I take (laughs) a lap
0: on every one of Tom's birthdays. I take a personal lap and personal celebration. You're still alive because of me, hombre. (laughs) You got 15 trips around the sun, son.
3: Ombre. That's when the color changes from like degradation, you know, when it's like pink and turns to purple. That's ombre.
0: I don't even know what you're talking <laughs> about right now. It's
3: like a color ombres. You're thinking like ombre, like the Spanish word for friend. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: I'm sorry. I didn't put an accent <laughs> on it.
3: It's just so funny. Are
0: you talking about freezy freakies?
3: Freakies, what we're talking about? No. Like
0: the Gloves that would change color. You'd stick them in the snow, and they would change. They would change shapes and colors.
3: Okay, no, now you're talking about what was? What was that the stuff called? The freaky freakies. <laughs> Remember those shirts that we wore that were if you breathed on them, too, they changed color like it was a temperature thing.
0: I didn't have any such fancy technology. I had Tom. I had Tom McCann sneakers and a rip shirt.
3: (laughs) What are you talking? Freezy Freaky sounds a lot like I can't remember the name of the thing. They were like
0: like the same line as like Shrinky Dinks. They were in like the like (laughs) science is crazy toys that were marketed. Science
3: science will blow your mind.
0: (laughs) It's like when you get a mug that like when you put like a hot liquid in it, it changes color. Like Freezy Freak, that was Freezy Freak's, but it was gloves that you could wear outside.
3: Well, I'll send you a picture of like.
0: Oh, I'll send you a picture.
3: I don't want any fixture. Never mind, no fixture exchange. I call
0: off the fixture exchange. So I look at him every birthday I say, "Aeeho, hey, another another <laughs> trip around the sun sun because of me."
3: You say, eho? Hey, <laughs> <"El, hijo." laughs> <laughs> just speak speak English. Listen just just speak English. Just say, hey, boy, you did it, okay, because I kept you alive. You don't even know. I, like, take real personal pride in the fact that that I I got them here. Now, I have three special needs kids, and they all have issues and stuff, so really making it is like a yay. But But for real, like, all those scary childhood things that you're just scared that we were all like, hold my hand in a parking lot. Never get away from me at the carnival. All the things that you're scared about, it's like, <sighs> yay, <laughs> we did it.
0: Jimmy makes one fatal flaw in this episode, as well as as much as he's firing on all cylinders on the topic of Fia. He doesn't have a good answer for Gina. So he falls back on what a confident man, maybe an overconfident man would say. Fia has to come home because she has nowhere else to go. And it's exact that exact moment that, you know, Fia is going to be going anywhere other than back home that's the hubris of parenting right it is the this idea of we know everything that they are capable of doing and that's exactly the moment when they do some shit you can't predict let's let's take a listen to fia in the church
2: and my dad was overbearing to say the least he's a carpenter oh like jesus <laughs> that's about the only thing they had in common anyway i uh i worked for him for several years and then one day, I said I wanted to do something different. And he laid out how bleak my future would be if I didn't have him to support me. His was the only house I ever lived in. He provided me with everything. And I was petrified to leave. But there was one place I knew I belonged. You really do pick your moments and then try to proselytize. My point is, Fia, is if you look at who is in your life, you may find that you do belong someplace, even if it's not the place you've always been.
0: If you look at the people in your life, you may realize there is a place you belong, which may not be the place you've always been. That's a convoluted sentence, but there's a lot of power In that sentence, it it was one that resonated with me. I'm curious if it resonated with you. Uh, I'm curious your take on it as it applies to Fia.
3: I really think that Fia needed permission from someone who she felt like, you know, could give her permission, which is kind of funny for it to end up being a priest. But she needed that permission to say, like, just because this is where you've always been doesn't mean that's where you belong. And I think that that's it is a powerful message. It is what she needed to be told. I didn't actually initially think of Michael. Really? Well, I know that sounds funny, but I was kind of thinking about Senator Grandma first because I thought some sort of feeling of like you almost have to go like extra outside the circle, I guess I want to say, you know, like Michael's still like right in the core of it all. So so I was kind of feeling like maybe maybe she will try to find a little bit of comfort a little further out than him. But I mean, obviously, it you know, he makes complete sense. He's the obvious choice. I was just letting my mind wander to think like well what other choices does she have who else counts as like family and uh, and someone she may have overlooked because she had already she had already gone to michael several times so i thought maybe i was trying to think of a character that was overlooked by her which is how i kind of felt like what the priest was saying was like think harder is there someone else and i was like senator grandma could be the someone else so that's how i got there i wasn't right but that's how i got there
0: Oh, I I wrote on all capital letters in my notes in the scene, Michael, because it's exactly what he's talking about. There is this person here that is exactly what you're looking for. Did Michael rebuff her? Yes. And has she been staying away from him? Yes. But I think if you would probably be hard pressed to find more, don't take no for an answer than a 17 year old young lady with a baby. Right. This is this who who has the Baxter blood in them. This is a person who, when needs to, is going to try to as much as possible assert herself and what she needs. Michael very may well rebuff her on that stoop. I don't think anyone thinks that, given where Michael is emotionally coming off of the bus and then seeing her there in that last shot. She's at least going to give it a try, and she's done this. Think about how they started their relationship. She wrote him a letter every month when he was in prison, even though he wasn't responding to them. She showed up at the prison even though he, he, he tricked her really into seeing him into seeing her. And even after he got out, she found him. She pursued him. She went to end cuts and pursued him for a relationship. This feels right that she would think of Michael and almost as if everything that's been going on, Carl leaving the baby with Angela, the the winding up in the hospital, the eugene of it all, all of those things made her forget oh, yeah, there's still Michael. I can go try that avenue again, just like I did so many times when I was pregnant.
3: So obviously, the other side of the family was the natural pivot. you know, she had to go somewhere that direction. What do you think about this? Do you think that Michael is at a place now after after really having that cathartic cry on the bus and and having a closure moment for Robin and and really even his relationship with Nancy in many ways, I think is repaired is that too far to say do you think it's too far to say that, that,
0: that they well, could? Be- i mean repair no but i was thinking in those same lines that that they themselves will have a detente that they are not enemies anymore or yeah. she's not his enemy he's not her enemy anymore i don't think he ever thought of nancy as an enemy i think he was nancy was just someone he could manipulate and then nancy was someone who wants to put his head on a pike i don't think michael <laughs> ever really held malice for nancy nancy held malice for michael which i think will be assuaged now
3: just because of like how this all like played out and she realizes like all the different players to it. Like that's what smoothed it.
0: That she really should have put this together more than she did. And she did. And she didn't do good cop work here for the, for this to be out here. This doesn't feel like she did as good a job as she has been telling everyone she was working so hard on. And Michael in the end had nothing to do with it other than being a guy whose wife was cheating on him and he didn't tell anyone about it. And and then lost her. Michael didn't actually end up doing anything wrong here. So I think Nancy has a little crow to eat when it comes to Michael.
3: So I agree with that very much. So I guess I'm glad that Fia went to Michael. I hope that maybe it's not even going to be the baby exactly, but maybe the combination of the baby and Fia that allows Michael to sort of come back out of his cocoon. I, I also think there was something about the, the very physical nature of revealing what happened with Robin, I mean, there was like running and jumping and being like handcuffed and hiding behind a car and gunshots and like this wasn't just like a you know you just read it in like the the file you know and it was like da da duh, duh that's who did it it wasn't like that I mean this was a very physical
0: reveal. He had a hell of a night. He, he had, really did. He really did. He was really in a did. Cop handcuffed. He was a gun to his head. He had a hold a gun. He had a. He was learn running.
3: About... He was yeah. hiding
0: behind the car when the shots rang out and. Right. Oh, shit! And he got out of the car and he scurried.
3: The whole thing. I mean, it was all it was very visceral, right? And then and he so, had to
0: go deal with Charlie and have that emotional yes, visceration.
3: Yes. So then do we think that the combination of events, plus that really big cry release, was that all enough to to have Michael be able to emerge when he sees Fia and the baby As a little bit of old Michael, like, can some of that come back out again?
0: I do. I think so, because he's completely stripped bare. He's back a little bit now to where he was when he first came out of prison, but even more stripped because now he doesn't have Charlie. Now there is no questions left about Robin. Adam is still dead. This girl and her baby represent the last tether to anything that ever made him happy. The last thing that is real His marriage wasn't real. His friendship with Charlie wasn't real. How she died wasn't real. This baby and what Fia represents and what baby Rocco represents is the only real thing. His relationship with Lee wasn't real. His relationship with Nancy wasn't real. His his relationship with Senator Grandma was only because he was a son-in-law. It wasn't real. Michael actually had nothing other than Adam. It was his only real thing in this world.
3: See, and okay, then I'm going to actually point to the, the, the moment that he had with Senator Grandma a couple episodes ago when he did sell mm-hmm. about the baby, when they had that, like, I apologize and I'm sorry that I wasn't there was after, after Robin. It was because I actually think that she's on his side now. I actually think that that is a real relationship now again same with nancy did they go through a whole lot of hell together absolutely but i think he can trust her again and they can have something where there's there's a little bit of at least just respect for one another that like this isn't you know we read each other wrong on different at different points and you know and we both did wrong things to one another here and maybe they can come back together i don't know i don't know Charlie, I feel like, is...
0: I think this is the exact time for him to accept Fia and the baby into his life. I hope so. That, that cry, I think, was really the washing away of the last old vestiges. And now, now he has to start forming new relationships like he did with Senator Grandma. That's the start of a new relationship. Like maybe he can with Nancy. That's the start of maybe a new relationship with her. This relationship with Fia and the baby, this will be a 2.0. Now the problem is, of course, Jimmy. Because Jimmy in his buoyancy and not wanting to hear Gina's shit didn't take into account Michael. And that's going to be Jimmy's undoing is that he didn't... He he saw them together at his birthday party. He saw them talking together at the Baxter house. And yet he's not thinking that Michael may be a place she goes to. That's on Jimmy. That's Jimmy's failure in this moment uh, where he's feeling so triumphant on everything else, not to think that Michael may be a place she goes. If he was if he was really thinking about it and really concerned about Fia coming home, he should have thought of Michael as a person to check.
3: Maybe he will. I mean, we don't know yet. This is still night of, right? Like, I assume they're finding the empty hotel room roughly the same time that Michael's finding her on the steps.
0: We're, we're, yeah, we're dealing in a very condensed timeline. This, this cannot over estimate. This whole episode takes place in just a, a few hours time all in one night. One hot night in New Orleans. Crazy, 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 crazy. <laughs> Let, let's get to some questions that we still have now, not only for next week, but we're down to three hours. So we, we have to start talking about some high-level questions and, 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 and asking those questions and players and where we think they're going to wind up uh we already talked a little bit about it but frankie what's your what's your over under frankie is dead
3: I think so long as if he got if he is alive and he got in his car and he drove away and we don't hear from him again, I don't think that it at all matters. I don't think he's somebody who's going to be like I'm going to come back a decade from now and avenge the my situation with the Baxters. Like I don't see that happening. But I think there's a fair shot he is dead because that was a terrible beating and and uh, we saw what happened with the bird and that bird didn't make it. So I, I think he's a goner personally. And regardless to the story, I think he's a goner.
0: I think it's important if he's dead only because that is actual blood on Jimmy's hand that Mm, we've only seen with the bird. And the anonymous boat guy that he shoots in the heat of the moment when, when Carlos is about to be arrested. Right. Other than that, Jimmy, we talked about this. Jimmy being a gangster, remember, he has Carmine's words in his ear that you're nothing but a thug. You're not a businessman. You, you lie. You think you're better than me, you fucking son of a bitch. You're a thug, just like me. That was Jimmy embracing his thugness, that beating. So, killing Frankie unlocks that aspect of Jimmy's personality. which we've not seen before. And a desperate Jimmy, uh, an angry Jimmy, is the most dangerous kind of Jimmy I am convinced of.
3: So do you think Frankie's alive or you think Frankie's dead?
0: Narratively in my head, Frankie is dead. I, I I think it's important to Jimmy's personality that he be dead.
3: Agree. I agree. Especially because he killed him with like his bare hands. There's something that's real messy about that. Yes.
0: Taking someone's life up close yeah. is is a whole next level of then taking someone's life. There's yeah. something removed about it shooting someone from a distance versus doing it with your bare hands at, well, and a medical tray like hand-to-hand <laughs> wise. There's something very visceral about that. There's something very animalistic about that. And that's an unlocked thing that we haven't seen with Jimmy before. So I think that is important. Remember, when he kills the boat guy, Steve, I think his name was? Trevor. Trevor, yes. When he kills Trevor, he does it with a gun. Even he's up close to him, but he does it with a gun. This is different. This was personal. This was animalistic. This was anger in its purest form. It was Carmine. It was him being his, fo- his son, his son, father-in-law's son-in-law right for the first time maybe so i think he's dead absolutely will desire back big Mo in the coming water with the baxter family now that the detente is over will jimmy have the conti family will jimmy be allowed to be in charge of the conti family in a war with desire
3: Do you think he can neutralize Gina in any actual way? Like, is there any card that Jimmy can play that puts Gina on his side that he can actually like have her as like a right hand man? Is there any scenario in which that can happen or are they always going to be at odds?
0: I think they're always going to be at odds. I think as long as Gina is made to not be the one always calling the shots they're always going to be at odds because Gina wants to be the one calling the shots and she does not want to be overstepped. She does not want to be countermanded.
3: So do you think that or when he does get angry and he does do things that that are vicious, you don't think that that's enough for her? She just doesn't put her hand on his shoulder and be like, "Mm mm-hmm, that's my guy. Does she have to be the one to do it or does she just have to know they're suffering at the hands of the Baxters?
0: I think only if he does something violent in a way that she approves him making choices doesn't satisfy gina necessarily only thing that turns gina on is him making decisions in a bloodthirsty way in a in a over-the-top declarative way which for gina is a violent way that's what that's what gets her going i think
3: Well, and I don't even mean, I know you're going like that route, but I just even mean like, is there any way that they can get on the same page? Is there any scenario in which we don't have actually this very fractured war, which is not really Desire versus the Baxter's. It's really Big Mo and whomever she thinks she can gather. Then we have Desire and whatever guys and Little Mo's Desire version is around. Then you have Jimmy and the Baxter group, and then you have Gina and the Conti group. Like, we actually have many factions it's not really just like two-sided war here there's a bunch of different groups and so i'm wondering who might align with who
0: yeah and i think those with only three hours left i think those those lines need to be divided up pretty quickly
3: Mm -hmm. i think so too but it could make for some unlikely bedfellows is what i'm saying because of just having some common enemies
0: what do you think Jimmy's reaction is going to be when he learns Fia went to Michael? I,
3: rage. I'm... Pure white hot rage.
0: <laughs> rage against Michael, though, obviously. Right. He's not going yes. to. Not against Fia. This is going to be some on your knees with a gun to your head.
3: he's going to lose his mind he's going to be like i you know stay away from my family he said it stay away from my children it's it's all been said over and over and over again but what what's Fia to do what is she to do
0: really if jimmy is taking a level-headed look at this this keeps fia in town this keeps fia in their life if he removes michael from her life fia will go she will try to run despite what she said to the priest to father jay about feeling like where am i gonna go they'll always find me take michael away from her she'll maybe feel like she has no choice but to try and make a run for it because she knows what life is like if she stays if she stays in the baxter house or or moves back to her actual family house she's lost as far as she's concerned she will have no independence she will be firmly under the thumb of jimmy and gina So if Jimmy is smart, let her have Michael in her life because that allows her to remain in Jimmy's life and in the Baxter's life.
3: I think there's very few things that he's going to be able to do right now to try to get Fia back into their group. I mean, and plus, we know that things are only going to get ramped up. Like, it's not, you know, she was pissed about the Carlo car accident, abandoning the baby, all that stuff. But we know there's another war coming. There's like another huge blast coming. So... Really, you're right. She's far safer to stay periphery and not be not be in either like the hotel right across from the club, like where we're like, if this doesn't end up being like a West Side Story rumble in the streets, like right across from one another, they could really go crazy with this.
0: Last question on my mind is uh, more returning characters. Lee finally made a return in this episode after being absent the first six episodes of the season. I keep wondering, and we haven't talked about it maybe since the season premiere, Franny. Franny knows Adam killed Mm. Rocco. a, A piece of information that we all don't talk about enough, Fia doesn't know. There's a part of me that feels like Michael has to tell Fia in order for Michael to really be able to move forward. Yes. There's also a part of me that thinks Franny returning out of the blue with that information, knowing now that Adam had posthumously has a child, the kind of thing that may set a Franny off.
3: <laughs> set a Franny off <laughs> and tell and
0: tell Fia in a spiteful rage. That would be a real, you know, turning over the apple cart kind of moment.
3: That's true. There's very few people left.
0: Right. To learn this truth, not from her family, who knows, not from Michael, who knows, but from the stranger who Adam was boning at the same time he must have been boning Fia.
3: Right. Does Carlo know that Adam killed Rocco? I'm trying to think of who's left that knows
0: no, not unless Gina, the Gina or Jimmy, told him off screen.
3: Right, but we never have been given any indicator that he knows. No, it's always been about getting back at Eugene because of him taking a you know an attempt at carlo but there's never been any connection there i'm just i'm curious of like who would be last people to to spill the beans
0: carlo killed kofi thinking that he was the one who killed rocco they blew up the jones's house because they Mm -hmm. thought kofi killed carla uh, killed rocco Mm -hmm. and we never have been told at some point after that that jimmy or gina knew so the people that know jimmy gina charlie and michael And Nancy and Franny (laughs) and Olivia. So, a lot of people do know.
3: A lot of people do know. I was just trying to figure out who who might use it to hurt Fia, who might use it to throw it in her face, who might use it, who who could use it as ammunition. That, that's what I'm trying to run through my head real quick. Franny was a good call. I was thinking about, you know, Carlo or obviously Gina and Jimmy. I mean, it might be Jimmy who tells her just to be like, you can't trust this family, you know, this, Maybe. this Desiato family.
0: Uh, here's my feeling, though. Jimmy and Gina aren't going to tell Fia because it implicates them for withholding it from her for so long. And on top of all the things they did to wrong people in retaliation that that'll cost them fia but the not the knowing and not telling her that's a bad play for them they don't get anything from it michael gains catharsis whatever the fallout is michael can't ever really have an honest relationship with fia and the baby until she knows I definitely agree with that. And Franny is the most likely to do it out of spite or hurt. So Franny and Michael are the ones that are most likely for me. If, I, if I'm if i running a pool, they're the ones that are the most likely to tell her. And I love the idea of coming out of the fucking blue, Franny returns with this one piece of information. <laughs>
3: with that little motor scooter thing.
0: <laughs> she just crawled off another student. She's having sex with somewhere. Oh, no. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> and the last person to return is we haven't seen Olivia now in three episodes. Uh, she's due for a return. I mean, just based on INDB, we know she's going to come back for some number of episodes of these last three hours. Well, and
3: for God's sake, it would make no sense to have introduced this character if she doesn't pop back up already. She's really played no part.
0: To- well, yes and no. She did set all of this in motion, though.
3: Not on not on screen. Like, I mean, we've had seven episodes and she was in like two so I'm just saying like you know yes her presence and the concept of her phone and that kind of stuff like yes that's played in but we haven't gotten to see old uh Rosie Perez in some time.
0: Michael you got to pick up the phone Michael <laughs>
3: I love it. I love it. This is an awesome episode. I can't believe we only have three hours left, but I'm excited we have three hours left because this could have been the finale in a lot of ways. And I think we would have actually been pretty cool with it. You know, the idea of like, okay, Desire's like busted apart. Michael is now hooked back up with Fia and the baby. The Baxter's all, you know, pissy with one another. Like we might have been like, okay, all right, this is a season ender. But I'm so happy that we still got three more because this is a series ending one. So we've got to answer some more questions. This is Caroline
0: and this is Mike. Thank you for listening to Tales from Yaya's, your dedicated after show podcast for Showtime's your honor. If you wouldn't mind heading over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review and subscribe. And while you're there, if you could leave us a five star review, we'd really appreciate it. It helps in promotion of the show. It helps other people find the show. It helps Apple promote the show. So it does a lot of good things. And if we like it and you write something nice about us, we're going to read it on the air. So you get to hear your name and your words on air and isn't that great listen we don't find your tranquility irritating in the least so leave us a nice review please thanks for listening thank you for listening this has been an original pod clubhouse production pod clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com Rate, review and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open and we'd love to hear from you.